play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, Patti Yinich. Patti has won three James Beard Awards for hosting the PBS television series, Patti's Mexican Table. She also hosts La Frontera on PBS, which is currently in its second season. Patti has written three cookbooks. She is resident chef at the Mexican Cultural Institute in Washington, DC, and she is just a ray of sunshine in human form. Patti was born in Mexico City, where her Jewish grandparents immigrated from Europe. So she grew up eating Mexican versions of classic Ashkenazi Jewish foods. I chat with the authors of the new book, Kugels and Collards, about another unexpected mashup, Jewish Southern food in South Carolina. And did you know that the ubiquitous phrase Taco Tuesday has been protected by a trademark for the last 35 years? Even small businesses serving tacos on Tuesday were getting cease and desist, but not anymore. I'll tell you the whole story later in the show. But first, my conversation with Patti Yinich. Hi, Patty. Hi. How are you? It's so nice to chat with you. It is so nice to chat with you. We were in the same room once several years ago. It went better for you than it went for me, but we were both at the James Beard Awards in 2018. Oh my gosh. Tell me about it. And tell me, do you like- I have always been drawn to stories about people who make dramatic career transitions complete 180s from one field to another. And I'm even more interested if their second career is in food. So I was born and raised in Mexico City. Uh, I come from a family of all girls, four girls, my mom and my dad. And food was always the center of our universe. It's the way we connected with our grandparents and aunts and cousins. Food always was very, very important at home. And my three older sisters went into the world of food early on professionally. My oldest sister has a restaurant in Mexico City. My second sister has had restaurants in Miami. She's now back in Mexico. And my third sister, she's into food and fashion as well. And I wanted to be an academic. I wanted to be a political analyst. I've always been an idealist and I wanted to work in the world of ideas where I thought I could, you know, spark dialogue and help in whichever way possible to the country that had welcomed my family. I come from a long line of immigrants from Poland and Austria and the Czech Republic. And so I went into social sciences and then I became a political analyst. And then I married my husband. He got a job in the U.S., So we agreed that I would continue studying where he found a job. And as I was doing that, I found myself really hankering for home and trying to grow roots in the U.S. The way that I could most effectively do it was by cooking, you know, the foods from home. I tried to not switch careers because I had did a master's in Latin American studies and then I was working in a think tank. So I felt like I can't veer off track, but... Something within me pulled me and I resigned. I enrolled in culinary school, started 
cooking, started teaching cooking. In 2007, Patti became the resident chef at the Mexican Cultural Institute in Washington, D.C. From the beginning, her cooking classes weren't just about how to make a really good salsa or a perfect taco. You were doing the food of the Mexican Revolution and uh, one that I'm super interested in, food of convents in Mexico. Yes, Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I started when I started teaching Mexican cooking, I really honed in on that research backbone that I had because I'm telling you, I'm just incredibly curious and not just in like wanting to taste everything, but in finding out where everything comes from. And sometimes I think it must drive my production team a little crazy because whenever I'm interviewing someone, I'm like, okay, where does your family come from? And your mother and your grandmother and your great-great-grandmother. And like, I go back to the caveman era, you know, like (laughs) I want to go back to the origins of the origins. A natural on camera. Eventually, she pitched a show to PBS and the rest is history. You've been so successful with all of your TV shows and your cookbooks. And one thing that I think is so great about it is that you're actually from Mexico cooking Mexican food because, you know, the people for so long that were representing this food was there was Diana Kennedy, who was huge, um, and then Rick Bayless in Chicago. And it's like, well, where are the people from <laughs> Mexico who should be getting these book deals and these TV shows? I feel like there's so many amazing Mexicans now doing what I do. I love it. It's such a celebration. I think that the more, the merrier. And I remember that when I started pitching a show, which was 13, 14 years ago, there was not a single Mexican with a TV show in the mainstream, you know, in the U.S. speaking English. And I remember how shocked I was. I can also tell you so many stories of how excruciatingly difficult it was to break through and enter. People, you know, had so many objections to my very Mexican ways, my very Mexican accent. And people were very concerned that the larger audience would not understand as I tried to communicate. I was told many times that Mexican food was too niche and too ethnic too little. And I remember being infuriated, you know, during those times. What do you mean, like, too little, you know, coming from Mexico or too niche? And when you think about it now, and so many people have contributed to helping Mexican food be practically part of the American culinary lingo, you know, you have Taco Tuesday, people not only know tacos, but they know enchiladas and tamales and When I first moved to the U.S. and when I started doing these, you could find a jalapeño if you were lucky and chipotles in adobo was very difficult to find. Now you can find practically every ingredient. So I think we've come a long way. But yeah, that was a big driving force for me. Being a Mexican doing these, of course, I feel a lot of responsibility. And I started very slowly with kind of a Mexican 101. I remember the first episode I did for Patty's Mexican Table on season one was quesadilla. I was afraid of making menudo, you know, tripe soup or different kinds of moles that were going to have many different ingredients. And 12 seasons later, I've done menudo, I've done pata, I've done tongue, I've done, you know. The whole body. The whole body. (laughs) But it's also because the audience is more ready. 
A couple minutes ago, Patti casually mentioned Taco Tuesday. Taco Tuesday has been in the news the past couple weeks. Did you know that since 1989, the Wyoming-based fast food chain Taco John's has held the trademark for Taco Tuesday? Over the past several decades, they have sent hundreds of cease and desist to restaurants and bars, even small businesses who have advertised a Taco Tuesday special. Which is wild because everybody does Taco Tuesday. It is such a ubiquitous phrase, I was shocked to learn that it was trademarked. Taco John's claims to have invented Taco Tuesday. But according to food writer Gustavo Ariano, who has been a guest on this show, there is evidence of restaurants advertising Taco Tuesday as early as 1933. Okay, so that is the background, but there is change afoot. As of last week, Taco John's finally gave up the rights to Taco Tuesday. Not out of the goodness of their hearts, but because Taco Bell threatened to take them to court. Taco Bell filed a petition in May with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to cancel the Taco Tuesday trademark. Taco John CEO Jim Creel said it just wasn't worth the millions of dollars it would cost to defend the trademark. Some experts say the phrase has become so generic they probably would have lost in court anyway. So next Tuesday, when you're out eating tacos, rejoice in the fact that Taco Tuesday now belongs to all of us. Patty has eaten all across Mexico, but when we come back, she talks about her favorite Mexican foods. And we're going to talk about South Carolina Jewish cooking, a place that once had the largest population of Jewish people in the country. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Palsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. Patti's Mexican Table is part travelogue, part cooking show. She travels to different regions in Mexico to learn about the local food, and then we head back to her home kitchen where she cooks a dish. 
but her newer show, La Frontera, focuses on the food and stories in Mexican border towns. I went into food because I wanted to be a food writer rather than a political analyst. And after almost 12 years of having Patty's Mexican Table, what I'm doing now with La Frontera, which is my new primetime docu-series, I'm going much deeper into a more journalistic approach in the borderland communities. But I find that I'm increasingly going into that social sciences, history, political analysis lens. Uh, which is interesting because I really wanted to get away from it and jump into food. And it has to do with, I guess, what brought me to food in the first place, which was I saw as a little girl how my grandmothers, one was from Poland, one was from Austria, and both fled very difficult situations and came to Mexico with nothing. And they were able to grow roots and they were able to make Mexico their home And the way that they were able to do it most successfully was by way of the kitchen, by weaving in flavors or recipes that they brought from home. I'm doing that in the U.S. now that I have my Mexican-American family. Anyway, I've been talking too much. You've visited a lot of areas. You've tried a lot of food. I'm sure you've fallen in love with a lot of foods. But what is something that Americans might not know about that you love so much and you would encourage people to try if they travel to that part of the world? Well, I'm now fascinated with the borderland foods. Like the U.S.-Mexico borderland cuisine is incredible. And I think it's very looked down upon. And it's most of the foods that people love, but they kind of won't admit it. Or they, if you think about nachos, like everybody loves nachos. But to some Mexicans, it's like, no, that's not Mexican, that's American. And for Americans, oh, some Americans are saying, oh, nachos aren't real Mexican food. Well, it turns out that nachos are real and authentic and delicious and genuine. And they were created in Piedras Negras, south of the border, Mexico. And then they spread like fire, eh, mostly in the U.S. And the same thing goes for fish tacos and carne asada fries and burritos. Many foods that are filled with myths and misconceptions and prejudices, but that people crave them anyway, you know? I mean, I went to El Paso in Ciudad Juarez and I had some of the best burritos I've had in my life. They were incredible. The same goes for ceviches and the seafood tostadas in the Calibaja region. So incredible, Rachel. I mean, I've had some of the best foods I've ever had at the wow. border. And it's something that people just wouldn't expect. How are the burritos different than what we get here? So typically, they're not as atomic bomb style. <laughs> yeah, gigantic. <laughs> so at the border, first of all, you have incredible made-from-scratch flour tortillas. They're malleable. They're almost sweet. They're made many times with either beef lard, sometimes with butter, sometimes with milk. I mean, they're just incredible flour tortillas. So the wrapper in itself is already an improvement. The filling of the burrito is typically one guisado, like one stew that can stand on its own without the tortilla. So it can be carne con chile. It can be like chile verde rajas, you know, like fire roasted chile verde, like fire roasted Anaheim chile potatoes, 
cheesy cream. I had a ridiculous burrito um, in San Diego, a place called Rolando's in San Diego. And there's many places that make these style of burritos, which is like a carne asada with roasted vegetables and a little like tomatillo guacamole inside. And it was like, I don't even know what to say. I finished that gigantic burrito in like five bites. I didn't even want to drink water. I just wanted to come <laughs> eat to continue eating. Where in the world are you? Because I know that you are filming today. You've been filming all month. Yes, I am in the city of Merida in the state of Yucatan, in the Yucatan Peninsula. And we're filming season 12 of Patty's Mexican Table. Can you give like a tiny sneak peek of what you're doing in the Yucatan? What kind of food maybe you're focusing on or one example? Of course, of course. So in Yucatan, they're a lot about charred rustic burnt flavors like they love to char the tomatoes the onion the garlic the spices they toast them a lot before they use them and they're a lot about citrus so they have bitter orange different kinds of you know bitter and sweet limes and here the chile that is king is the habanero but they have other varieties that are not really known outside of Yucatan like do a lot of cooking underground they make a hole and they will put wood and leaves and the food here has a lot of yeah that like rustic taste and feel to it So you grew up Jewish, um, both sides, your family were Jewish immigrants and living in Mexico City. What are some of the mashup of these dishes? I was so interested as a Jewish person to read about <laughs> these Jewish Mexican foods that your family cooked. Oh, so delicious. And that's the thing, Rachel, that many people think, oh, Mexican Jewish is that just dropping a jalapeno into a matzo bowl soup. Well, no, <laughs> Jewish Mexican food has been in the making since the Spanish arrived to Mexico and there were people fleeing the Spanish Inquisition. There have been different immigrant waves from different countries. The First World War, the Second World War. Well, you were talking about the food and yeah, the food is fascinating. Ranges from the Ashkenazi Jewish Mexican foods where you have the gefilte fish um, with jalapenos and mushrooms or um, sopasteca style with avocado and jalapeno and onions and lime. You have the gefilte fish with the Veracruz sauce with tomatoes and olives and capers. You have chicken with tamarind and chipotle, but then you also have the Sephardic Jewish Mexican foods, which lean more, of course, into the Middle Eastern Jewish communities and you have the kibes and the agrios and um, so many delicious things. Like Patti said, Jewish people first arrived in Mexico in the 1500s, fleeing the Spanish Inquisition. And a similar thing happened a bit later in the American South. So Jews have been in South Carolina since the 17th century. The first Jews show up in 1695 or somewhere thereabouts. That's Rachel Barnett, co-author of the new book, Kugels and Collards, a collection of essays and recipes highlighting Jewish Southern cuisine, which just like Jewish Mexican food is totally new to me. The interesting fact is in 1800, there are more Jews in Charleston than New York. So South Carolina was always welcoming to Jews they were written in the earliest documents as given religious freedom, Jews and other heathens. 
Yeah, our history is amazing. It goes way back. We have one of the oldest synagogues, KKBE in Charleston. The early Jews were Sephardic. They came from Spain, Portugal, through the islands. They were, you know, obviously escaping the Inquisition. And they came to this country, same reason everybody else has. They were looking for freedom of religion and a place to, you know, take care of their families and, and, and have a good life. Like all immigrants, they brought their food traditions to their new home, just like the enslaved Africans did when they were brought against their will to the American South. As the immigrants came over, they hired African-Americans to work in their kitchens. Prior to that, probably in the 1800s, you had enslaved people. People find it hard to imagine why did Jews own slaves back in the, those days, but they assimilated. They were part of the community. I'm speaking about Charleston. So, you know, it's where food tradition comes together. African-American women came and, and took care of the family and cooked in their kitchens. It melded together. So you might have a kugel sitting on the table next to a you know, bowl of collards with fried chicken and brisket. I mean, that could be your holiday meal. And that's not your typical holiday meal in a lot of parts of the country. And if you're not familiar with kugel... Kugel is a noodle pudding. It's egg noodles. It can be sweet or savory can have eggs and butter and cottage cheese, and you can put fruit in it, and you can put cinnamon sugar in it, and raisins. You can, there's so many recipes. Kugel can be very confusing for those who haven't had it before. Egg noodles with cinnamon and sugar and cottage cheese and raisins. It's a sweet dish, but it's never served as a dessert. It's always served along with the main meal. It's a special little dish. So, Rachel, one of the themes of the book also is to bring out from the shadows, so to speak, the African-American women who did this cooking, who brought the recipes in. We want to give them their credit because without them, we wouldn't have this wonderful melding of cultures and tables. And we have several stories in the book about very special women who cook for families. You know, it's time to bring this out to the forefront that, you know, the woman standing there taking all the accolades wasn't necessarily the one who was cooking the food in the kitchen. Rachel says there wasn't much fusion between Black and Jewish cultures. The traditional Jewish dishes would be served at the same table as collard greens, mac and cheese, and barbecue. But modern cooks are getting more creative. One is a fabulous recipe. Allie Rosen, who grew up in Charleston, lives in New York now, sent us in its locks and grits casserole. And it is fantastic. Can you think of anything more Southern and Jewish all at the same time? It's very rich. It is, you know, stone ground grits, the real stone ground grits, not off the shelf kind, the real good stuff. And it has a lot of cream and cream cheese and all kinds of good stuff that makes it nice and rich. And then you fold into that some chopped up locks and you bake it. And it is this rich, lush casserole that, you know, can sit on anybody's brunch table. And it's beautiful, too. Kugels and Collard's co-author Lisa Harvey says not all the dishes easily cross over because of kosher law. But some folks make exceptions. Don't ask, don't tell. We eat the barbecue and we eat the shrimp, we eat the shellfish because it's here. This is the land that grows this and we're surrounded by this. So it was a kosher home um, when my grandparents were alive. Now, my grandfather loved to catch crabs. So he would boil them on the, in the backyard, but we would never bring them in the, in the house. Uh, my great-grandmother would have had a fit. <laughs> 
Chapati has such a good last meal, and I am so excited to share it with you after we come back from this quick break. Patty, let's get to the big topic. Your last meal, what would you choose? <laughs> okay. Okay. Whenever people ask me, what could you eat every day of your life? Or, you know, I always say the same thing. But when asked under your lens of what the last meal would be, I have to go back to that one, which is milanesa de pollo eh, empanizada or, you know, chicken schnitzel with mashed potatoes and chayote squash salad. And I would definitely need to have chipotle in adobo with a lot of sauce on the side. And I just grew up eating that since I was a tiny little girl. And I remember, too, and this was like a weekday meal. Like in Mexico, we have a big comida, not cena, you know, so it's a big lunch, not dinner. And my mom would come to the table with a big plate of, you know, we were six. So these chicken milanesas, she'd bring the big bowl of mashed potatoes, big bowl of the chayote squash salad, which is just steamed chayote squash diced and lightly pickled with red onions in a light vinaigrette and we would all like just dive into those platters and start fighting for the milanesa and the mashed potatoes and the chayote squash <laughs> and to this day I think it's the meal that I love the most if I could add a little more like I would have sopa de fideo to start with you can have an alphabet soup style with alphabet pasta or with fideo with like very thin vermicelli or thin spaghetti in that tomato broth. And I would end it with a panque de chocolate con vainilla, like a marbled chocolate and vanilla pancake or a flan. For her last meal, Patti Yenich wants to start with sopa de fideo and then move on to milanesa al apoyo with mashed potatoes and chayote squash salad. For dessert, she wants panque de chocolate con vanilla, a chocolate and vanilla swirled pound cake. It seems like so many cultures have their version of a schnitzel or a milanesa, like the pounded breaded chicken. So is that a popular dish in Mexico or is is that something? Oh, yeah. Oh, it is. Okay. Oh, Oh, yeah. It's an everyday dish. Not only in Mexico City, where I come from, but all over Mexico. I'm here in the Yucatan, and there's milanesas at the markets, in street food stands. They make tacos, they make tortas. One of the most popular tortas, you know, Mexico's crusty bread sandwich, is a torta de milanesa. So you have the Mexican-style bread, refried beans, milanesa, you know, the chicken milanesa, Avocado, tomato, onion, pickled chiles, cheese, best torta ever. So milanesa is, yeah, I think maybe that's one kind of a universal thing that many cultures make. Is the mashed potatoes traditional Mexican too? I'm trying to figure out like how much it is. Okay, so this isn't coming back from like your family's European roots. No, 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 no. I mean, of course, potatoes existed where my Polish grandparents came from, but they just ate them boiled. No schnitzel that I know of. But the milanesa with mashed potatoes is a very Mexican thing. And I think that that's something that a lot of people don't know either. You know, 
within the the repertoire of Mexican cooking, you have very universal things. You have the milanesa de pollo, you have mashed potatoes, you have not only the, the pasta soup that I was telling you about, but pasta seca is like a traditional weekday thing where we cook the pasta until the pasta can take no more in a spicy tomato sauce. And instead of doing it with Parmesan cheese, like they do it in Italy, of course, in Mexico, you would top it with crema and ripe avocado. But that is like an every person's meal. All right, let's talk about this panque. Oh, the pound cake. Panque, pound cake. Yeah, panque marmoleado is also widespread in Mexico. It's, um, you know, a traditional chocolate and vanilla pound cake marbled. And it's so traditional that there's Mexican brands that, that sell it ready-made in stores in different sizes in tiny little towns all over Mexico. You've been traveling all around Mexico all of these years for your show, and you're from Mexico City and have found that you've learned a lot about these different cuisines that you weren't familiar with. Has it changed your own home cooking or do you find that you go back to the food that you grew up with, the food that you know from childhood? Rachel, this is such a great question. (laughs) It's such a great question because I was thinking about, you know, the name of your podcast and what was I going to tell you? (laughs) And I found myself, of course, going back to the food that I grew up with since I was a little girl. It's definitely changed my home cooking. I find that the kitchen in our home is really a place for both experimentation and it's my family's language. It's our love language or anything language. We communicate through food. I have three boys, one graduated college, one is in college and one is in high school. And if you saw our family chat, it's just filled with photos. Like, this is what I ate today. This is what I ate yesterday. Oh, look what I'm cooking. And there's not much of anything else than like food, 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 food. That's how we know where we are in what place are we emotionally to, you know? But I find that, yeah, I love bringing new flavors and tastes into my home you know, like it makes the world bigger within our home and it's beautiful. It takes the boredom out, you know, but I do find myself when I'm very tired or homesick, like I'm feeling a little bit today, which is our break day in the middle of two weeks of shooting. And it's been tiring. It's been really long days. And when I find like, oh, I'm missing my dog, I'm missing my boys, I'm missing home. What I crave for the most are those foods that made me. You have so many mashups in your life. You know, you have the Jewish heritage, the Mexican heritage. Now that you've moved to the States, have you added that on? Do you have a dish that kind of smushes together all of these parts of you? (laughs) Yes, of course. I mean, I feel like there's many. My kids always loved mac and cheese. And in Mexico, we love pasta too. And I started making uh, mac and cheese Instead of with a just cheesy sauce, with a poblano chile creamy sauce. And it became a big hit at home. But also turkey, you know, in the U.S., I love celebrating Thanksgiving with our friends. I think it's become my favorite holiday. But in Mexico, people eat turkey for Christmas and New Year's. So that is something that I've started to to do my Mexican-style turkey for Thanksgiving, which now my friends love. And whenever we're in Mexico for Christmas or for New Year's with friends, 
uh, bring the idea of chocolate pecan pie, like in the U.S. Um, I love American pies. I love that tradition. What makes it a Mexican turkey? You marinate the, the turkey in an adobo sauce. You have rehydrated chiles that you puree with roasted tomato and onion and garlic and spices and a little bit of vinegar and you marinate the turkey in that or in the Yucatecan style in my first cookbook I have a pibil style turkey where you have a shiote paste and different kinds of citrus I mean if you were in Yucatan you would do bitter orange but since it's hard to find Outside of Mexico, you combine grapefruit, orange juice, lime juice, white vinegar with achiote paste, anato seeds, and roasted garlic, roasted onion, a lot of herbs like oregano, allspice, black pepper, cloves. And you marinate the turkey for as long as you can in these marinades that just add so much flavor. And then I stuffed it with like a cornbread chorizo tart apple mix. I roasted it in the oven, but covered in banana leaves as if it were buried underground in the Yucatecan style. And what happens is that you get the most moist turkey that just falls off the bone and it picks up the fragrance from the banana leaves and it's tropical and delicious. That sounds amazing. I can hear you almost drooling (laughs) And that was Pati Yenich's last meal. Well, Pati, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You're such a ray of sunshine and just so captivating to watch and just so warm and just so different from everybody else. You really stand out and I love watching you. Oh, thank you so much, Rachel. That means so much. And I've enjoyed the conversation so much. And I hope that we get to meet each other in person again soon. Me too. Yeah, I'll see you in Mexico. Amazing. (laughs) All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You can watch La Frontera and Patti's Mexican Table on PBS. Both are streamed for free online. Thanks to Rachel Barnett and Lisa Harvey. You can pick up their new book. It's called Kugel and Collards. This episode of Your Last Meal was produced and hosted by me. Original theme music by Prom Queen. And I have some big news. Your Last Meal is now a product of Cascade Public Media in Seattle, which is the Pacific Northwest's largest PBS affiliate. If you are new to the show, welcome. We would be thrilled if you subscribed and left a nice review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow along on Instagram. I'm Hello Rachel Bell. That's B-E-L-L-E. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Okay, I think this this is going to sound better, and I'm confident that I'm in a good place. Mentally and emotionally and spiritually (laughs) (laughs) and physically. (laughs) I mean, at least Wi-Fi way, yeah. Yeah, Wi-Fi-ily. 